You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio, 89.7 WGLS-FM. Welcome to the Voices in Sports series, a part of Rowan's National Girls Women in Sports Celebration, which is organized by the Women's and Gender Studies Council. The event is sponsored by the National Girls and Women in Sports Committee, Women's and Gender Studies, the Center for Sports Communication and Social Impact, the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, the Office of the President, Rowan Radio, Rowan University Libraries, the Office of Social Justice, Inclusion, and Conflict Resolution, the Center for the Advancement of Women in Communication, and the Women's Alliance Network. Um, so thank all of them. Thanks all of those organizations and groups um, for supporting this programming. And then also we want to thank all of you that are here um, joining us tonight. So my name is Kate Harmon. And I'm a member of the Communication Studies Department, and I also teach in the Sports Communication and Media Program. Our guest tonight is ESPN journalist Katie Barnes. Welcome, Katie, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. It's quite an impressive list of sponsors. Like It was, it was a mouthful, and I'm, I'm happy I got through it. <laughs> I'm impressed, honestly. That's good for you. So uh, let's jump right in here. Um, so... Whenever there's these conversations about uh, media or sports media or journalism, right, there seems to be this dynamic where white cisgender men, they get asked questions about journalism and writing and their process and just kind of like writing about sports. And then those um, who come from marginalized or underrepresented communities, they're asked questions about identity and, and kind of how they navigate those identities. And I just I want us to talk about both of those things because I think both are equally important. But part of me just thinks, you know, we should just ask you all the questions that the white men get asked. Um, and so I, I am curious how you make sense of this dynamic um, and, and what you, how you kind of feel about how this binary has been set up. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, one of the ways that I navigate it is I try to, I've started to be a little bit more vocal about my desire to be asked certain questions. I'm like, I'm, you know, I don't know, like writing and journalism, like all of that is a skill and far be it for me to declare myself good at any of it. But there are certain things that I do think I excel at. Um, you know, it's like I'm a good interviewer. I've gotten compliments from people that I interview uh, consistently. I approach that with intentionality. I have a lot of opinions and feelings about how one should conduct an interview. Um, similarly with like scene writing, uh, that's something that I consistently receive feedback on in terms of my ability to um, spin a scene, to report scene, um, and to kind of make something from nothing when I have to. And those things are really important to the craft of long-form journalism, uh, but I'm rarely asked those questions, I think, uh, from members of the field or I'm, you know, not necessarily brought in on a panel on long-form journalism. I'm often brought in on a panel about, um, you know, how do we better LGBTQ coverage, which is an important topic and one that I'm happy to contribute to. Uh, but I have just, I have found that now that I'm entering the middle part of my career, um, I'm sort of, you know, consistently being asked for one thing more than another. And so one of the ways that I try to kind of push back against that is saying, I have thoughts and opinions on these things. You can ask me about them. Uh, they're just as valid as somebody who is white, cisgender, straight, and a dude. Um, you know, it doesn't, it's like it doesn't disqualify me from having craft opinions. And I think it's important as we think about the future of journalism and how journalism will be shaped if the only people whose voices that we trust on the craft of journalism or coming from a dominant lens, and that's going to influence the way that journalism is practiced and developed. I imagine that's something that's kind of followed you throughout your whole career, even from, from the beginning, the, the types of questions that you get asked and the types of panels that you get asked to be on. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think at first, you know, when I was early in my career, and I, I want to be clear about this, like for me, the focus on LGBTQ athletes is one of, um, it's something I take immense pride in, honestly, and it's you know something that I find to be really important. And early in my career, it opened a lot of doors for me in terms of being able 
to develop as a journalist and develop as a feature reporter and get opportunities uh, because there are certain things that I was really interested in that other people weren't really as interested in um, or in the case of a couple of stories that only I could do and so they let me do them even if I perhaps would not have gotten an opportunity like that say on you know uh, an NBA story or an NFL story certainly um, and so in that sense, you know, I have professionally benefited from that focus and that led to being asked to participate on certain panels and, you know, be given a certain level of validity and authority early in my career because of my expertise in those particular topics. Um, but now that I'm older and I have expertise in other topics, I'm kind of like, y'all, you can ask me about that too. So I should just scrap all my questions is what you're saying. We should, we should start over. No, we, I, I like your questions. I already told you that. Uh, okay, so well, let's kind of combine both those things. And so how do your identities kind of inform your work and your writing and, and your process? So I think for me, as somebody who's biracial, queer, non-binary, trans, like just a combination of things, um, you know, I think it informs you know, the kinds of stories that I'm naturally drawn to, for sure. Um, you know, I love football. Like, I really do. It's probably, like, my toxic trait. I love football so Me much. Me too. I feel you on that. This you is know, absolutely but, my toxic trait. Yes. But, like, you know, we don't need me to be a long-form uh, feature writer in football. Like, we got plenty of those. And so, uh, you know, the things that I'm interested in are definitely informed by my background, by my sports fandom growing up as somebody who loved women's basketball as a kid and who played basketball um, in the great Hoosier state of Indiana. Um, and so that for me, I think really informs how I approach stories, what I think of as an important story. Um, and then I think in terms of the actual craft of reporting and writing, yeah, I think I have a strong sense of empathy uh, that is grounded from experiencing life as a different person and being read as being different almost everywhere that I go. I can understand when other people feel the same, uh, regardless of whether or not we share identities. And so that to me has been really important in developing um, interviewing and reporting skills. And then, of course, I think my background also allows me to have a different kind of sourcing around a lot of these issues. So especially how I entered into journalism, um, having had a background in like volunteering on like a couple of marriage equality campaigns in both Minnesota and Indiana, having a really um, intimate familiarity with LGBTQ nonprofits across the country, like all of that, um, I think, has really helped my sourcing and allowed me to bring a more well-rounded um, conversation around a lot of these topics and issues. Yeah, you touched on this a little bit. The way you got where you are is a little atypical, that's for sure. Um, yeah. and, and so let's kind of take, take a step back even further. You know, you work in a field that's predominantly white, it's predominantly male, it's predominantly cisgender, it's predominantly heterosexual. I'm not telling you anything that, that you don't know. Um, but it's also a field that it hasn't changed that dramatically as far as demographics go. Um, even within the past 20 years, you know? Um, so I think I'm curious, and, and again, you did touch on this a little bit, but I'm curious how you kind of got to where you are today. But also, you know, when you were a kid, when you were a teenager and you're watching sports, did you ever see yourself reflected back, reflected back in, in the media that you were consuming, um, in pop culture generally, but, but also in sports? Yeah, you know, um, it's a good question. Like, I think for me, in terms of how I was reflected in media, I never really saw people at my specific um, intersection. You know, like, it's a very specific intersection, so uh, I haven't really seen that reflected in media. I certainly did when I was younger. In some senses, I think I have now in different ways, or at least more close, I guess. Um, and in sports, you know, it was, a different, it was different. You know, I grew up, I'm not particularly old, um, but I grew up in the 90s in small town Indiana. Um, you know, it's a different time. We're talking about queer people. Um, you know, it, it, like it's not necessarily great now, but it was really not great then um, in terms of just not having a lot of visibility. Um, certainly there wasn't a ton of visibility in women's basketball at the time, which was where most of my fandom was concentrated as a kid. And um 
And so I, I never really considered a life in sports outside of playing sports. And so as I grew up, you know, I played basketball uh, for the overwhelming majority of my childhood um, in terms of, um, sorry, I just saw a message that in the chat that acknowledged Washington. Um, and uh, I'm not from South Bend. I'm from a town about an hour from South Bend, very small. Um, but I did play against Skylar against growing up. It's my claim to fame. <laughs> she kicked my butt in case you're wondering. My mother likes to remind me all the time. So, yeah, so I grew up playing, you know, basketball against Skylar against, And, uh, you know, that was just like kind of what I did. And, you know, I, I came out young for that time. I was 16, um, had a very affirming family. And then I went on to college in a small uh, liberal arts school in Minnesota, where I coached basketball at a sixth, seventh, and eighth grade girls at a small Catholic school. And I got into a lot of like LGBTQ advocacy on my college campus, but like my sports life and who I was as a queer person, very separate. Like it never really occurred to me that those things could be together because I had never really seen them be together. And that was only starting to be a thing in like the late 2000s um, and, uh, you know, 2011, 2012 when I was in college. Um, and uh, like for context, you know, Simone Augustus, who was playing for the Minnesota Lynx at that time, um, you know, came out publicly and she's one of the biggest stars um, at that time to do so. And she did it because Minnesota was um, experiencing this big campaign around this marriage amendment that would have amended the state constitution to outlaw um, marriage equality, essentially. And uh, you know, before Minnesota, 31 states had seen similar constitution amendments. 31 states had passed them. And um, I volunteered on that campaign when I was in college and Minnesota was the first state to turn it down. And so things sort of rapidly escalated from there. But at that moment, there just wasn't a lot of representation of like queer people in sports, like it just wasn't a thing. And so over time, I started to kind of piece those things together and be like, oh, sports, you can be gay, obviously. So I should be out about that. And like I was. Um, but I went to the uh, LGBT Sports Summit in 2014 that Nike hosted. I met my mentor there, and he kind of opened some doors for me, including writing at feministing.com. I wrote a sports and pop culture column uh, while I got my master's degree in higher education. Um, and then after that, I was like, I don't really want to go into higher education. That sounds like a terrible idea. And so I applied cold for a job at ESPN as a digital media associate, and they took me, and the rest is history. So it's kind of windy, but we got there. <laughs> we got there. Um, a couple of, I mean, you mentioned Simone Augustus, you mentioned WNBA, women's basketball, and this actually is like a perfect kind of transition and, and, or segue for me, thinking about the Lasia Clarendon piece you wrote um, recently, because I imagine that that version of you couldn't have imagined writing that article, um, at, especially at that time with, with everything um, where you were and, and just Simone Augustus' significance. and um, So what was that like? I mean, what was the personal significance of writing that cover story on Lasia Clarendon? And did the writing process itself feel different? Or was it? did it feel like any, any uh, other feature to you? You know, all, a lot of my pieces, they're all special in different ways. Um, and they're all personal to me in different ways. But I think, you know, with Lasia, that piece um, was particularly impactful for me in a number of just like layered experience ways. I think, you know, one is that like Lasia and I are the same age. So you know, we graduated from college at the, the same year. I remember watching them play at Cal. Um, and it, and, you know, I mentioned earlier that I have like a, I said a specific intersection. And so I don't really run into many people that also sit at that specific intersection. And Lasia does. And there's no, I think, denying uh, that kind of a connection in terms of uh, shared experience in different ways, even though, uh, you know, how we define the, the terms that we use for ourselves, you know, that's different. Um, our experiences certainly are not the same. You know, Lasia is a professional athlete. I am not. So like there are clear differences, um, but being biracial and queer and non-binary, that's a very specific place to sit. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so for me, I think that was really important. 
And then, you know, I don't think it can be overstated the importance of the fact that we did a cover story on a transgender athlete in Pride. And like to be the writer to get to bring that to fruition as a queer person, as a trans person was very meaningful to me. Um, it was meaningful to me that I work at a company that allowed me to do that. And that was supportive of that all the way through. Um, and then, you know, I think it's also I mean, uh, the reality is I also felt just a tremendous amount of pressure, <laughs> like in terms of writing it, you know, where it's like, oh, okay, this is the thing that we're doing. Um, I really don't want this to suck. And also, you know, the fact that, you know, Leisha and, you know, her wife, Jess, trusted me with a lot of their time, um, with a big chunk of their story. They were very vulnerable with me. And so to have people open themselves up like that, yeah, I wanted to do justice by those choices. Um, and so the writing of it, I found to be hard in a good way um, and emotional on others, but ultimately one of the proudest pieces I've done. I, I just want to sit with that for a minute because the fact that it was ESPN, I that is remarkable to me that that's still, and, and I know it, it probably shouldn't be, or but, but I think it also does kind of tell us a little bit about where sports media is when it comes to or just like these legacy traditional sports media outlets in particular, when it comes to how they cover non-binary or trans athletes or just the LGBTQIA plus community in general, um, that must have added to the pressure that it, it wasn't just any outlet. It was ESPN that, that you were writing this for. Yeah, I think I'm always aware of uh, the possible impact that comes from elevating a story at ESPN is something that I grapple with a lot, especially someone, excuse me, especially someone who writes a lot about young athletes. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not a small local paper. Um, we talk about just the size and the impact that ESPN can have. Uh, but I also think, and, you know, I know I, I'm going to sound a little bit like a company homer, but, you know, I'm of the opinion that ESPN has been industry leading on this issue uh, for quite some time. Um, and I don't just necessarily mean in sports. Uh, when it comes to good at it, like good coverage of the LGBTQIA community, you know, ESPN is really right at the top there. Of course, there are examples of missteps, um, as there are at all outlets. Um, but you know, for, certainly from a sports perspective, like predating me, there's just so many examples of ways in which um, ESPN has really led in terms of covering this and covering it well. Um, but, you know, yeah, I always feel that in terms of, you know, getting a big opportunity and wanting that to succeed because I believe in these stories uh, and not just in the sense that, like, I believe in them as a person that shares many of these identities, but because I think that they are relatable. <laughs> like, um, you know, they're one of my favorite interviews I ever did, or like way back in the day, was with Lena Waithe. Um, and she said to me, you know, the specific is universal. And I think about that a lot. Like, just because Leja sits at a specific intersection does not mean that there aren't relatable parts to his story. Like, there are. And so, you know, opening that piece with this beautiful moment between Leja and her child is so important and moving. And, like, what new parent can't see that? Um, but then also thinking about that from a perspective of young queer people, young trans people, getting to see someone like them become a parent. Like, that's really cool. And so there are different ways to interact with these stories, but they're not niche. And so the opportunity to tell them on the biggest scale available in sports, I think, speaks to their overall power. Um, but yes, on a personal level, also does elevate my blood pressure a little bit. Yeah. So it sounds like you feel as though, and I, I and we're going to get to some of the, the more negative stuff in a, in a little bit, but it does sound like you feel like we're getting maybe as a society a little better at telling trans stories or we're a little better at telling stories about non-binary athletes, or is that too much of a stretch? Is that not quite what you meant? I think some people are. <laughs> I don't know that we as a society are better, uh, certainly not necessarily in this moment. Um, but I do think that there is a tremendous focus and interest on transgender people in this moment. Um, whether or not that is a good thing is not for me to decide. Uh, but I do think that 
certainly at ESPN and in my coverage and in my work, we strive to tell these stories with empathy um, and examining all perspectives around these issues with similar levels of veracity. Um, and I think that's really important. So, I mean, your writing in general does focus a lot on traditionally underrepresented or, or marginalized people in sport. Um, you know, whether you're talking about LGBTQIA individuals, uh, female athletes, women's sports leagues. I mean, I know you've done um, a pretty decent amount on, on women's combat and fighting sports. So how do you kind of view the evolution of um, women's sports leagues? But, but also, you know, with regards to gender presentation and, and gender uh, presentation visibility as, as well as acceptance um, as it relates to queer athletes, because I do think when you mentioned Simone Augustus, um, she was really a trailblazer in this regard. So I, I would love to kind of hear how you feel or wh whether you feel like this is a reflection maybe on some larger trends. Yeah, I think yeah, there are a few things happening. One, like women's sports is definitely having a moment. Like there's no way around that. Um, and certainly I think, you know, looking at the WNBA as an example of that, but it's not just the WNBA. Like ratings are up for the W, they're up for women's college basketball, softball, uh, they're up like just, oh my goodness, for um, the NWSL. Like, you know, people watch women's sports when they're on TV. That's very clear. Um, and I think there's a lot of interest um, in general. Like, you know, women's college world series is fantastic. It is such a fun time. I love softball so much. And, uh, you know, it was on at the same time as the NHL playoffs uh, last summer. Uh, yeah, early last summer and outrated them. Like, I just, it's fun. People love it. And so I think there is an acknowledgement that there is data there to back up uh, clear fan interest. And so if sports media is interested in, you know, serving sports fans, well, if you're going to serve all sports fans, you have to serve women's sports fans too. So I think some of that is definitely like one big macro trend that's happening. But it's interesting how that is affecting what's going on in a league like the W, which I think the WNBA has reached a critical mass of out LGBTQ athletes where, you know, you can be, it's just like nobody does an announcement anymore. Like that's not a thing. Like you can live your life how you want to live your life, privately, publicly, mixture thereof. It's not news. Like you can just be who you are. I mean, at this point, it's like folks are just announcing marriages. Like it's incredible. It's partner, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, you know, it's like superstars, bench players, whatever. And like, you can be who you are. You've got, you know, the announcer is referring to, you know, Vandersloot passing the ball to her wife, like quickly. I never thought that would happen. Like, it's just a completely different place. But then also, and I think this is really interesting, as we're seeing, you know, this influx of interest and influx of capital into uh, women's sports. Well, what does that mean in terms of who's going to have access to, you know, these elevated profiles? And I think, you know, we're starting to see the ways in which the politics around race and gender and sexual orientation are starting to re-enter this space. And I'm not really quite sure what to do with it. Like, I'm noticing that, you know, the Black masculine of center queer folks aren't really getting the same play. Um, you know, when we're elevating, you know, um, uh, when we're elevating women, you know, are we elevating white women? And like, if we're elevating white queer women, what kind of white queer women? Like, there's just like a lot happening underneath this in terms of who's going to be able to sort of, you know, seize this moment and capitalize off of it. Who's going to be allowed to be a superstar? Um, and even as we are like looking at with intention, the racial politics at play. I think there's a lot of people who are saying we need to be focusing on black women, but I'm also like, are we only focusing on black femme women? Like yeah. we need to talk about that too. Like in terms of um, visibly queer folks, uh, in terms of people who are masculine of center, like, you know, I think Leisure really put it best in terms of talking about all of the gender expansiveness that is present within the W. And that is true. There's such a range of gender expressions. Um, you know, even if there isn't like a huge range of gender identities, but there certainly is in terms of expressions. And if that is the case, then I think it's also um, a little bit concerning to me in the early moments um, around how 
I feel like that that range is not being represented um, in terms of you know, who's being elevated. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm thinking a lot about Aaliyah Boston and mm -hmm. Caitlin Clark, and you know who's being discussed during during whose games. And I, I know Don Staley had a couple of tweets about it yesterday. You sure um, did. Yeah, and you, you know she's right, and that's obviously about NIL and high-profile players, one of whom is on the best team in the nation, um, and isn't getting the same type of coverage, the same kind of conversation as Caitlin Clark, who is also great, and they can both be great at the same time. Um, and so I, I do think there's so many different conversations that are happening, whether it's about queerness, um, who's presenting or performing in what way, and then also the, the racialized um, aspects of this as well. Um, you know, you did, you started off by, you said that Women's sports are having a moment. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, but we've seen this before. I mean, just in our lifetimes, we've seen women's sports have a moment. Um, and it seems like this one step forward and two steps back, and it's exhausting and kind of demoralizing sometimes. <laughs> um, and this, this does feel different, and I don't know if that's me being naive, but it, this does feel like a different moment that we're in. And I, I am curious what you think the responsibility is of some of these legacy or traditional media outlets in, in telling women's sports stories? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think it is different. I think it's different for a couple of reasons. One, you know, social media. Like, it, the reality is, is that if legacy media isn't gonna do it, the fans are gonna do it themselves. And they've made that very clear. And they're capable of doing it. <laughs> um, I think we see that on women's basketball Twitter all the time. And so, like there is a reality that that is happening, right? And so I do think that legacy media publications need, like, and television need to be responsive to the moment. And I think we're starting to see that in terms of, you know, college game day is going to be at the South Carolina Tennessee game this weekend. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, we're seeing more. And I mean, I don't know. I didn't count, but this has to be close to a record number of college of women's college basketball games on network television for this season. Um, there have been multiple, and it's not just ESPN and ABC. There have also been multiple on Fox. Uh, CBS has maybe started to dip their toe back in the game. Uh, so you know there is more, I think, interest in putting and putting women's basketball and women's sports more broadly in more prominent places and this is translating not just like women's basketball which is where i'm most familiar but we're seeing it with women we're seeing it with women's collegiate gymnastics which is a huge sport but does not get the coverage that reflects the grassroots interest uh, we're seeing it with certainly with softball moving forward i mean that's just a huge growth property um, i'm of the opinion that everybody is underinvested in softball from a digital coverage perspective and so i think we're seeing it in terms of linear television and placement of sports there's a lot of growth there because the data and the ratings are very clear but what we're not seeing reflect that i think is and this is across you know really the entire landscape is a matched investment from a coverage and um, reporting perspective. Um, and so that to me, I think is one area where everyone uh, could get better. Um, and, uh, you know, I still think that ESPN is really the best in this, in like in this way. Um, but, you know, everyone else could kind of catch up a little bit. That's kind of how I feel about it. Absolutely. This, you know, this makes me think about echo chambers and, and siloed information. And usually we talk about these concepts in in conversations about politics and, and political ideology and how we kind of all exist in our own little echo chambers, but it has a huge impact on sports as well. Um, you know, sports, the sports information we get um, and sports coverage. And, you know, it's important because we're having this conversation. There are people who don't know who Aaliyah Boston is and there are people who don't know about Lasia Clarendon. Um, and so for me, I remember when that piece came out, my whole feed, right? My whole feed was just everybody talking about your article and everybody talking about Laisha and just um, how pumped. I mean, I just remember it was like a really cool feeling to be on Twitter that day. But that's my Twitter feed, right? And, and I've curated that Twitter feed to look like that because I care about women's sports and I care about these issues. Um, and so when we talk about siloing of information, you know, if you don't watch, you don't know, which means you don't watch again right i mean it's this it's this cycle and how have you seen this play out um 
on stories you report on or, or issues you report on um, and, and just things that you've, you've written about? You know, I think one of the things that I try to remind myself, um, because yes, we all have these echo chambers. I think social media is really influential in terms of shaping how we think about things as fans and as people, right? As far as like people that we respect, um, uh, that we follow, who then tell us like, this is important and this is cool. And it feels like everybody's talking about something, but it's just our little corner, right? And so I tell myself all the time, like Twitter isn't real. Like, it's just not like, it's not real life. There are a number of stories that I have done that have been met with relatively muted response on Twitter that have been really well read. Um, by, you know, data perspective. Um, even, you know, the piece on Lasia, like there, I was not the first person to write about Lasia. And I think that there are, um, you know, there were others that received, I think, even more fanfare on social media than mine did. But I know what the data said. Yeah, but I know what the data said about how many people read mine. And I felt very comfortable with that number. And like, I think similarly, you know, I did a piece that published in September about, um, you know, transgender athletes and uh, the legislative session in 2021. And, uh, you know, there was some response on social media, but didn't go viral, um, certainly. But it was my most well-read piece on that topic by orders of magnitude. And how I interpreted that was that people were reading it and they were considering it and they were doing it privately. Um, and, you know, I think it also speaks to the importance of uh, continuing, of ESPN continuing to cover these stories because our, our reach is just so much larger than really um, everyone else in the sports landscape. And so, you know, from a digital perspective, like that's something that I try to remind myself is like, you know, the flowers and stuff are great on social media, but it just doesn't, it doesn't always translate to mean that a piece um, has performed in the way that I would want it to. And I want to be clear, it's also not the only thing that matters. Sometimes it's just important to do a story because it's an important story. Right. Um, but, I, you know, I think it does speak to the fact that, like, sometimes fans also get into echo chambers and they think that everything that their friends are saying and people that they follow are saying is the thing that everybody's saying. And that's not always reflected in the data and that's like a hard thing i think for people to understand um that you know maybe what they want isn't actually what everybody wants it's just what they want um but you know i don't think that's just a hard thing when determining how best to allocate resources and what the best you know path forward is in terms of what's the best coverage yeah and this you know this brings me to men's beats and covering men's pro sports it's still considered the best beat right i you know that's what i hear all the time not just from students but you know social media which again as you said isn't all isn't necessarily real life but i mean it's we have this idea that that's the best beat that's what you want to strive for that's what you want to work for um and simultaneously you know sexism misogyny homophobia transphobia they're really still rampant in, in this broader sports media industry. And I'm curious what you think or how we can counteract some of those narratives or some of those mindsets. I think for me, one of the things that I talk about is that, and I'm very intentional about this, is that women's sports coverage is not a stepping stone for me. And I talk about that openly. I don't think it makes me any less of a journalist. I don't think it makes me any less ambitious. And that the fact that I, my favorite, because I mean, a lot of people, they want to cover the NFL because it's their favorite sport and it's like the biggest sport. And I get that. Like, that's fine. I love the NFL. I, what am I going to do that, like, we don't have 32 people already doing? Like, that's just not the best use. I don't think of my skill set and of my intellect. And so I say that as I pitched an NFL story last week, but it's fine. Uh, first one. Um, and so for me, like, I really focus on continuing to deepen you know my coverage and the storytelling that I want to do and focus it in women's sports or at least at the intersection of sport and gender however that plays out uh, that doesn't mean that I have not written about cisgender men I have uh, but I also recognize the difference in energy when I do and as a writer it's really seductive and there's one thing that I talk about being a writer 
like the reality is that if you're a writer, you have an ego, you have to, because you have to believe your words are worth reading at just bare minimum, right? And so it's really easy, I think, to fall into that cycle of, you know, you write and you get attention, you write and you get attention. And that feels really good, especially for those of us who have egos, which I admit I am one, but I try and keep it in check. And, you know, when I have written about cisgender men in the past, it, all always in combat sports, actually, um, I have felt that where it's like suddenly there's like all of this energy. People are engaging with me. I get DMs. They're nice. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah. And it's like, oh, I wrote about a cis guy. <laughs> like, that's what's happening. And the energy is different in women's sports. And, um, you know, I have a limit for myself as far as how many cisgender men I'm allowed to write about in a calendar year. I've never hit that limit ever. Um, and, you know, and so I try and think about like, if I'm going to think about why does I want to write about, write an NFL story? Why do I want to pitch that idea? It's because a unique idea that I think reflects who I am as a journalist, not so much about, I really want to tell, I really want to get into NFL features. That's not what I want to do. Um, and I'm, and I try and be as vocal about that as possible. And I think that's really important. Um, because it challenges the narrative that somehow men's sports are better, that they're bigger, and that's where you want to be. Yes, there are more eyeballs. There's no way around that. But that doesn't mean that it's inherently you know, going to be the best job. Um, it just means that it might be the most visible in that particular way. Um, but for me, that's not where I want to be. And so, like, but all that to say, like, if you love the NFL and that's really what you want to do, that's great. But if you just want to be recognized as being the biggest, baddest journalist, you can do that in any number of ways. It doesn't have to be just in men's sports. And I think it's a real problem that we put men's sports at the top as far as like who gets access to being, you know, one of the best sports writers. Right. Yeah. And I, I think about this in terms of who we trust to write what stories. And so, you know, we, we, tr we trust um, black people to write stories about black athletes and, and racial injustice, or we, we trust um, Asian, uh, Asian American to write about Shohei Otani's story, or, you know, Nathan Chen, or, you know, and in, in the same way, we trust non-binary and trans individuals to write about issues that impact trans and non-binary people. But at the same time, like, that's a heavy burden to kind of consistently you know, ask the oppressed, oppressed people and marginalized people to do this. Um, and also, people should be allowed to write about and report about um, what they want. And so I, I'd love to hear how you balance that, because that seems like it can be emotionally and mentally draining. Hmm. I think it's, it's a difficult balance. Um, for me, you know, I have made choices about what it is that I want to cover. Um, you know, I like probably like 95% of the stories that I write are stories that I pitch um, that I'm interested in and that I research on and that I want to do. And uh, so I make choices about, you know, how I want to spend my time. And I feel like it is important to write high quality stories about um, communities with which I identify, uh, not exclusively, but certainly, you know, a big chunk of my time, I think, should be spent that way. That's how I want to spend it. I think it, it kind of goes back to like what you said, like, honestly, your first question about, you know, craft versus identity, right? You know, yes, we do trust like trans and non-binary athletes, to, well, writers to write about trans and non-binary athletes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there is a clear identity association in many respects. Um, but also, you know, I think it's a question about, well, do we also trust trans and non-binary journalists to write about non-trans issues? Same like with Black folks, we trust Black folks not about to write about high-profile stories that have nothing to do with race. Like that to me is also really important because we certainly trust, well, maybe trust is the, is the wrong word, but we certainly allow white cisgender heterosexual men to write about topics and people with whom they share no identities. Um, and, uh, you know, whether that be high profile or, you know, having a stretch assignment, like going in to write about women's sports, like that's allowed to happen. 
So why can't we take a women's sports writer who may be well suited for a story about, um, you know, an MLB player? Like, why can't that assignment happen? Um, and should it be happening more often than it is? Like, to me, it's not necessarily a, well, is the burden too heavy? It's more that like, well, is that the only thing that you're allowed to do? And if the answer is the only time that you get to take a big swing is on something that's really hard emotionally, well, I don't necessarily think that is particularly fair. But, you know, if you know it's a big story that you pitch and that you want to do, and yes, you share those identities, like, go for it. But then also, you should get an opportunity, like, to write, you know, a cover story about somebody else. And to me, it's you know, important to note that my first cover story was not Leisha. It was AZ Foot. Right. And that was just a story about, you know, a kid coming back from an injury. It was a very straightforward sports profile. Um, and I loved that that was my first cover story. And then, of course, when it came time to do a big Leisha Clarendon story, it was then elevated to being a cover story because of the quality of the material. And it made sense from the get-go that I would do um, you know, a feature on Leisure, and then of course that became a cover. And so, you know, my next cover story, whenever that is, I don't really anticipate it being something that's particularly identity driven. It'll probably be another like, you know, run of the mill sports profile. And maybe that person is black and queer and maybe they aren't, I don't know. Um, and so I just think it's really important that we allow, that we be honest that would be critical about who we allow to cross different boundaries and why, um, and that that be more equally shared. And then I think we'll see those burdens ease and be equally shared. Yeah, and I'm hearing in your answer this discussion of access and opportunity and, and who has access and who has the opportunity. And do you feel like in your career you have had that the amount of access and opportunity that that you deserve? I mean, is that something that you feel like in your journalistic career you've had? At ESPN, certainly. I mean, I write at ESPN. <laughs> like, there's no way around that. I mean, uh, you know, so I was hired as, uh, you know, essentially like an intern, you know, and um, I had like a year-long placement and then I got hired as a staff writer and I was given the opportunity to grow as a journalist. Um, and I wrote shorter things. I wrote kind of off the wall things. Um, I was given, you know, the opportunity to really grow and develop and figure out who I was as a journalist, especially since I did not come from a journalism background. And then when I got my opportunity to move into feature writing full time, you know, that made sense for me. And the company has continuously invested in me. And I moved from, you know, being a salary staff writer, being, a, you know, a contract talent writer like everyone else. And, you know, there are so few stories um, from the company uh, in recent years where people have gotten that kind of opportunity. And certainly as a Black person and as a non-binary person, as a queer person, I am consistently reflective on the fact that there are very few people um, who can claim any of those identities, let alone all of them at the same time, who've had a similar opportunity. Um, and so for me, you know, I think it's actually more concerning that I'm still kind of a party of one in a sports media industry um, in terms of somebody who's had that opportunity to cut my teeth and grow into a formid like a formidable journalist. I think that's fair to say, like, yeah, and like become like a good writer and like have a career doing this. Like that was unthinkable to me 10 years ago. I didn't even know this was a thing that I would want to do. Um, and so I do think in that sense, internally at ESPN, I have had many, many opportunities where I find that I get frustrated is within the field of journalism. It's so network and like it's so network driven, like it's all about who, you know, and I happen to write at a very big company. And so when you think about anyone who's an ESPN writer, there's probably like 25 people who would be named before we get to me. And that's okay. Like, I'm not upset about that, but I find that's an always an interesting dynamic, especially when I talk to students and they're like, wait, you did all of this stuff. Like, I have no idea who you are. I'm like, I know it's okay. I'm not offended. I'm not upset. Like I get it, but you know, it's like you kind of get buried underneath that. And then a lot of the network opportunities are kind of identity driven. And so, you know, 
being a part of NABJ, you know, it's something, but like, is it super queer inclusive? I've had mixed opinions about that. You know, being a part of NLGJA, there's a lot of questions about how trans inclusive is NLGJA, but that's been like where I found like my community home, really. Like, you know, all these initiatives about uplifting women journalists and sports media, like, cool, but like, it's not really me. I don't really want to take up space there because I don't identify that way. And I think for a lot of people, when it comes to the ways in which femininity is, is pushed to the side as a masculine person, I'm like, eh, I don't know how I feel about that. And so it's just kind of like a little weird where there aren't those natural networks that have that I've been able to plug into and that's kind of rendered me a little invisible at times or as I felt that way at times even as my work continues to resonate in different ways um, I as a journalist don't necessarily feel like I have um, a natural home to build those networks uh, to then think about how my career develops um, outside of the walls of ESPN not that I'm trying to leave I am not um, but internally, like, it's been great. And I think a lot of people assume it hasn't been, and it's actually awesome. Like, I, I know, I'm a homer, but I love ESPN and I love working there. It's awesome. No, but I think your point about isolation, and I've seen you kind of tweet about this before, um, you've talked about how isolating it can be when you identify as non-binary, and there are all these organizations that promote the advancement of women. I mean, we're at an event. We invited you to an event for National <laughs> yeah. Girls and Women in Sports Day. And don't think that that's not lost on me, right? I, but I, I think it's just how can organizations better support these underrepresented groups within sports um, without excluding non-binary and, and gender queer and gender non-conforming and, and trans people? Because I think this is such it's such a critical question. Um, especially right now in this moment that we're in? That's a really good question. And I honestly don't know that I have a great answer. Uh, you know, I think for me in general, as an individual, I feel okay moving around women's spaces. Like it doesn't really bother me. Um, I identify with women, if, even though I don't necessarily identify as one. Like I enjoy being around women. It's great. But, you know, I think so like some folks like really bristle at the idea of kind of like women plus, right? Like women are non-binary because uh, it kind of brands being non-binary is like women light, like kind of women, but like not really. Like, what does that mean if you're assigned male at birth and you're trans femme and you're non-binary? Are we going to welcome those people into those spaces? Like, how do we feel about that? I don't think that's what you're talking about. And so... I find that to be a real challenge because any space that was initially like, you know, delineated to be specifically for women, they kind of say, oh, also and non-binary people. I'm like, eh. And so, you know, that just goes back to, I think, the ways in which we're struggling culturally right now around what do we do when we're pushing, you know, back against um, these structures that are really binaried. Um, and I would also say, you know, it's important to support women in journalism and women in sports and women in sports journalism. Like, that's very, very important. Um, and so to me, I think it's less about critiquing gendered spaces and more about, you know, making some of these more generalist spaces more inclusive. Um, like, that would be great. You know, like, it would be awesome to go to NABJ and, like, not kind of feel weird. And I've only gone once, but wasn't my favorite experience. Um, you know, I think it's incumbent upon, you know, NLGJA as an organization to revisit how um, that association is branded from an acronym perspective. And then also to think about like, how is it more welcoming for people of color, girls of color, um, and pushing back against some of the narratives that exist. And I think like that is just reflective on how organizations that purport to be in favor of inclusion need to be critical with themselves as far as their behavior in the past and how they can change that moving forward and make it more inclusive for everyone. Um, and also it's important for organizations to fund people to go to these conventions, these conferences and build these networks and have these experiences. Um, and that's a big part of it too. Um, and so it's kind of like a mixture of everybody just needs to do better, uh, but I don't have like a specific thing. Cause I also think National Girls Women's Sports Day is very important. And I grew up playing girl sports and I write about women's sports. And so like that to me is really important. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you mentioned earlier um, about some of, some of the work you've done um, writing about 
these trans, anti-trans bills, uh, anti-trans legislation that has been sweeping the country for years now. Um, it is only getting worse, and it, it, the bills are only getting more egregious. Um, and they are targeting trans youth, and they are targeting trans participation in sport. Um, and it's obviously, it's not new. This is not a new idea. Um, it is just so prominent right now. And I know this is something that's obviously really important to you and something you've written a lot about. And you're going to be covering Leah Thomas. So I, I would just love to hear what you think people can do. What, what can people do to support trans people? Um, and what do you think organizations and leagues can do to kind of guarantee that trans people have access to sport at all levels? Because they deserve access to sports at all levels. For me, how I approach it from a journalistic perspective is I try to tell the truth about what's happening. And so what is important, I think, is to read the bills. Um, I don't always think that people really know what's in them. And I think it's important to say exactly what's happening. I think it's important to say where the conversation is murky and where it is not. Um, you know, there is like reasonable minds can disagree about appropriate policy um, and what is, uh, what should be, like who should be centered when we're talking about um, competitive fairness at elite level sports and including division one athletics where scholarships are there. There are, you know, people can have different opinions about that and it'd be reasonable. You know, I think it's important to note that a lot of these bills um, you know, start their restrictions as early as elementary school um, and go all the way up to like collegiate intramural. Uh, like we're talking about like trans women being barred by law from playing a collegiate um, like intramural flag football at Ole Miss. Like that's actually true. <laughs> so, you know, there's a question of like, do we need to be focused on legislating around competitive fairness there? I think it's also important, at least for me to, you know, examine like what do we know scientifically? Um, where do people agree scientifically? Where do they disagree? What are medical professionals saying? And communicating that um, publicly. And so I think when it comes to, you know, what people can do around this topic, I think it's really just educate yourself. Like, is there a bill pending in your state? What does that bill say? Um, you know, what do you think about it? What are people saying about, um, you know, trans inclusion in your state? And is that reasonable? Um, and, you know, I think that's really important. I think a lot of times humanity and empathy is lost from this conversation. Um, and there are a lot of people who perhaps disagree, um, but who aren't, and I mean disagree with each other, not necessarily disagree with me, um, but who are not necessarily on the same side as one another. Um, who have the capacity for dialogue, but that kind of gets lost amid all the rhetoric um, because the stakes are really high. It's not just sports, what we're talking about. We're talking about bathrooms, we're talking about um, appropriate speech in school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, I think, you know, that's really important. Uh, one thing that I do think is interesting that is not necessarily happening at, you know, the, well, that I think will really start happening is because of the NCAA changes and the IOC changes in policy that's putting more pressure on the international federations and the national governing bodies is I think we're going to start seeing more policies affect youth. And I don't know exactly what that means. Like what's USA, like what's US soccer's policy? And like, how does that affect like their development academies? How does that affect club soccer? Like that's gonna say a lot, you know, USA Swimming's policy previous to everything that's gone on with Leah Thomas, was really process focused about name change um, because you know they were dealing they deal a lot with club swimming etc. Like what does it mean for USA gymnastics? Like those are very gendered sports. Um, like men's gymnastics is basically completely different from women's gymnastics, and so you know like where's the WNBA and the NBA at on their junior WNBA and junior NBA leagues? Um, you know how is you know some of these large grassroots? Um, well grassroots of, uh, you know, AAU and um, like Nike tour, um, you know, leagues, how are they going to approach this? So there are a lot of questions that are out there around um, club experiences and non-school experiences and how that's going to affect youth and as those policies are developed. And so for me, I think there's, you know, a moment here where, 
you know, there's there's room, I think, for people to lead on this issue in terms of developing good, sound policy. Um, and what that is, I'm not entirely sure. And I think that's honestly part of the problem is a lot of those things are in flux and our understanding around science is in flux um, and how, but I will say that one thing I think is crystal clear is that when it comes to kids, no endocrinologist, no scientist, uh, no matter what they necessarily believe on the issue as it comes to elite sports, um, has said that any level of restriction uh, for prepubescent kids is appropriate. So I only have one more question, but I do want to take this time to tell our audience that if you haven't submitted a question yet, um, we will be asking Katie a couple of questions from you all. So type some questions that you have now um, in the chat, and we're going to do our best to answer as many as we can. All right, so my final question is that you're working on a book, and so I, I would just, in the, in the spirit of a sports journalist, could you talk a little bit about your book, please? Oh my God, talk a little bit about the book. Um, yeah, the book is about, it's the exact book that I think people would expect me to write. Um, it explores the ways in which ideas about gender and sports have made and remake each other. Um, and uh, it's a mixture of reporting, um, so a mixture of uh, reporting, of memoir, um, and uh, of commentary and analysis. It's kind of a very interesting thing. And a lot of like pop culture stuff. Um, I think one of my favorite moments is um, opening the science chapter with a scene from uh, the just wonderful show, May She Rest in Peace pitch about, um, you know, Ginny Baker, who is a fictional uh, first woman to pitch in the Major League Baseball. And uh, yeah, so like I have moments like that and I talk about the good fight, talk a lot about TV and movies uh, to explain how we talk about gender and sports. And I have really enjoyed it. I'm very ready to be finished. So here's hoping I hit all my deadlines this year. Go team. All right, so we do a couple of questions. And again, audience, keep coming, uh, keep bringing them in and, and I'll try to hit as many as I can. Um, so has there been a point in your career where you felt like you've hit the peak? And if so, how have you moved past that so that your career can continue to grow? Nah, homie, all we do is rise. Let's go. Um, no, I don't think so. I'm still so early in my career. Um, I feel old as a 31-year-old. Oh, my God. Uh, but I am not. Um, and I'm only been, I mean, this is my seventh year in ESPN. And so I think about all the things that I have left that I want to accomplish, um, even though I did, you know, surpass a lot of my goals really early in my career. And so I've tried to set new ones and think about, well, what, what do I want the next phase to be um, since I reached, you know, one little tiny peak? Um, you know, how do I, you know, climb my Everest as it were? So how do you come up with questions that help you connect with the person you're interviewing while still respecting their boundaries and not prying too much. Um, have you ever experienced this problem? Mm, I think one of the things that I try to do with all of my subjects is I openly communicate with them and empower them to set their own boundaries. And I think a lot of that comes from my interviewing younger people. Um, I never want parents to feel like their kids are being taken advantage of. Um, I especially like in that older teen range where uh, parents don't always feel like they need to be present for an interview. Um, and so I always have conversations with my subjects before we start about the parameters for the interview that I'm going to set in terms of what is on the record, off the record, like what on the record, off the record and on background mean to me and how they can articulate how I'm supposed to use what it is that they're saying. Um, and I also always tell them that if they don't want to answer a question, they don't need to answer a question, um, but that I'm a journalist, I'm going to ask every question. And so that I think allows uh, for rapport building. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to, you know, actually doing the interview, I often sit down and I plunk out some questions that I want to ask or and group them kind of by topic. So if we're doing childhood, I do a lot of profiles. So childhood, you know, bio stuff, um, how they feel about stuff. Now, if there was a moment I witnessed, I wanted to ask them about. Um, and I structure those questions to be open-ended. I never want to give um, a subject or a source an out. And so what I mean by that is if you ask a closed question, like a yes or no question, 
um, or did you feel this way kind of a question. Well, if you ask somebody a yes or no question, the only answers they're obliged to give you are yes or no. So if they expound, that's gravy, but they don't have to do that. Um, if you're asking somebody a question that's like, did you feel this way? Well, all they have to do is say yes or no. They don't necessarily have to tell you how they feel. So if you ask the question of when you did this, how did you feel? Well, they have to give you an answer. And so I'm always looking for ways to get the best answers. Um, and then, uh, you know, from there, uh, you know, you can kind of move forward and drill down as much as a subject will allow you to. Um, but I find that through an interview process, as you build rapport, um, hopefully that subject will trust you uh, and will share information with you. And occasionally, if I'm trying to extract something, you know, I might ask, you know, like, I'm asking this for this reason. Um, you know, so it's like, I'm not trying to pry, but blah, 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 blah. Um, but sometimes I won't say that because maybe they don't feel like you're prying and then you told them that you're prying and then they suddenly feel like you're prying. So if you're just having a conversation, you're going deeper and deeper and deeper, you just kind of spend that time and you allow yourself to pull that stuff out of people. Um, and so the ability to, I think, build that connection and think about how you're purposely structuring your question asking and where you're spending your time, like you don't start with like the stuff you really want, you kind of leave that in the middle. Um, and then you could spend time there. And then when you've exhausted that moment or it feels like it's too much, or maybe they're pulling away because they gave too much, you move on to something else and preferably something fun that brings them back to you. So there's a question here about um, kind of what do you, how do you deem, like is there a certain number of stories that would be like sufficient coverage, um, especially as it relates to like really, really significant or huge stories for LGBTQIA athletes? And, this person's specifically asking about um, some of your Leah Thomas coverage. So I guess like what <laughs> constitutes like, how do you get to like sufficient, which I think is a really interesting kind of framing um, when we're talking about such a huge issue. Yeah, something I grapple with a lot. Um, I've struggled with a lot in the last couple of weeks because um, you know, it's not just sufficient, it's also what's too much. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a hard thing um to grapple with you know there's a tremendous appetite for stories about leah thomas um and uh, you know there's also a lot of news happening and so there's a lot of stories out there um and so you know it's tough because a lot of the issues that uh, well, let me speak about leah specifically you know i think it's important to provide fair and accurate coverage period around transgender athletes. And it's important to cover the news when news happens, period. And so at this point in time, there's a tremendous amount of news. And so it requires a tremendous amount of coverage. Um, you know, I think that you know, pursuing quality storytelling also requires putting in the time because it allows others, it allows other avenues to that story to present themselves or otherwise they may not have. And so I think that also speaks to the importance of investment in coverage for things like women's sports. Like you can't, you know, you don't know where all the best stories are in all the locker rooms unless you're in the locker room, you know? And so that's true here too, especially when we're talking about a specific athlete where the story has become, um, much bigger than I think anyone around her has anticipated or anyone at the program, regardless of how they feel about Leah's competing, has anticipated. Um, and where consequently we've seen a tremendous amount of shutdown where folks aren't really talking in that program. So getting into there is uh, a challenge um, and has proven to be very difficult in terms of telling the story of what has happened this year. Um, outside of the news as it presents itself. So I don't know if I answered the question, uh, which is, it's a case-by-case -case basis. I kind of feel it out. All right, we've got one more. Um, how can sports journalists approach storytelling to help fans understand the interconnectedness of multiple identities and appreciate athletes as multifaceted individuals? Mm, that's a great question. I wish yeah, I could yeah, it's something that's very hard to do. And, you know, not to like, you know, keep harping on Leisha, but I think it's a really great example where Leisha, you know, that story didn't just talk about, you know, who they are as a trans person, talked about who he is as a biracial person, as a person of faith, as a parent, like there are so many layers. And so also basketball, like that's the thing that was happening in that piece. So, 
balancing all of that substance with a narrative was one of the hardest writing um, challenges of my career, for sure. Um, and that is, you know, really, really difficult because a lot of times when we're covering an athlete in some way, especially like in a profile, it's like we have a narrative, right? Or even, you know, uh, a piece, you know, like a gamer, there's a narrative to the game. Um, you know, you're doing a write-up of so-and-so's charity work. Well, there's a narrative to that as well. Like we have these arcs that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when you complicate that with all this other stuff that's interesting, but doesn't serve the narrative, like, and you have to adjust the narrative to be less of an arc and more of like an entire like encapsulating circle and in a sphere, like where arcs from all perspectives. Also, I just came up with that with that. Like that's just so hard. And so um, how I do it is through uh, intense amounts of editing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that speaks to, I think the challenge that we're in though, is that when we're talking about high quality storytelling requires a tremendous amount of investment. And that is investment on the part of the journalist. It's investment on the part of the subject, on the part of the outlet. Um, you know, you can't just like show up to a game and hit like this multifaceted off of the interview. If you can do that, your star should hire you immediately and pay you a million dollars a year. But like, that's not how it works. I talked to Leisha for like seven hours for that story. <laughs> like, and uh, it's a ton of time. It's a lot of investment, a lot of vulnerability from all people um, involved in that process. And so that to me, I think is uh, what's really important is that it's not just incumbent upon each individual journalist, although yes, you should invest, but everybody involved in the production of that piece needs to invest. And that's when you get the highest quality stuff. That's a great question to end on. I, I love the question and the answer way to kind of kind of little bow tie um, on the on the conversation. So that's all the time we have for tonight. And um, so on behalf of the organizing committee and the sponsoring organizations, thank you to everybody who joined us tonight for the virtual celebration. And a huge thank you to you, Katie, um, for sharing your experiences and your insights with us. Um, this was this was really great. So thank you and good night, everybody.